On page 19 of The Nature of the Atonement, John McLeod Campbell has this sentence that is worth really, really pondering. And um, this is the first sentence of the first chapter of my book. John McLeod Campbell's axiom marks out the parameters for our consideration. Quote, the faith of the atonement presupposes the faith of the incarnation. End of quote. That is to say, the atonement is to be seen in the light of the incarnation and the fulfillment of God's purpose for humankind which the incarnation intends. That is to say, the atonement's worked out in terms of the person of Jesus Christ, not just the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the atonement, and that leads to his death, but he in himself is the atonement. So the, 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 the single most important thing maybe to get a hold of in McLeod Campbell is that he is attacking at its very core the Western Ordo Salutis that collapses the atonement into the death of Christ <coughs> um, and sees the death of Christ as an instrumentality that ameliorates, propitiates um, the wrath of the Father over human sin. In other words, God is fundamentally conceived as lawgiver and sin is conceived as broken law and a satisfaction must be paid. That's the Western model. And MacLeod Campbell um, is fundamentally attacking that. Um, I want to... Uh, I want to say something about the context of MacLeod Campbell because um, indeed his um, whole theology comes out of a pastoral environment. Um, but I need to find it on my machine here. <laughs> One of the lovely experiences that Kathy and I had um, six years ago when she was on a Lilly-funded sabbatical and we were in Britain for three months, paid for by the Lilly Foundation, the very last weekend um, <coughs> before we came back to the States, we'd been all over Britain and we'd just spent a month in Edinburgh and a week in St Andrews and we were flying out of Glasgow Airport on the, Saturday, on the Monday. And on the, sa the Saturday we stayed in a lovely little hotel in Ballock which is at the head of Loch Lomond. And then on the Sunday morning, we drove to Rowe in Dumbartonshire and worshipped in John MacLeod Campbell's congregation. It's not the same building. <clears throat> it was destroyed. By, his building was destroyed by fire. So this is a rebuilding, but it's the same site <coughs> on the shore of the loch. Uh, just lovely little environment. <coughs> and we were obviously strangers, so people interested in who are you and what, what not and you know we explained and I was doing work on John McLeod Campbell and they were so excited <clears throat> they gave me a copy of the history of the congregation with a chapter on McLeod Campbell and um, they, there's a McLeod Campbell memorial window and um, they you know, talked, showed us that and it was all very very moving for me <clears throat> McLeod Campbell's theology of the atonement arose out of his setting, 
his life and his ministry. Its roots lie in his pastoral experience. It's well worth reading his posthumously published, and I can get you a copy of this. Uh, I've got copies in the office. His posthumously published and incomplete autobiographical reflection on his brief ministry in the Church of Scotland. And it, you can find it, but I can give you a free copy. Reminiscences, reminiscences and Reflections, referring to his early parish ministry in the parish of Rowe, 1825 to 31. That's what it's called. And it's Reminiscences and Reflections, uh, edited with an introduction by his son, Donald Campbell. Uh, John MacLeod Campbell wrote this 40 years after the painful events of his demission from the ministry by the Act of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland in May of 1831. And it provides an interpretive narrative, um, story form to some extent, by which the great book, The Nature of the Atonement, can be approached. Wistfully yet thankfully, his retrospective reflections allow him to note this. Listen to this quote. The Christian ministry as one form of the Christian life, is a progress in hope, not a surviving of hopes. Isn't that good? A progress in hope, not a surviving of hopes. like that. He was ordained into the parish of Row, R-O-W, but sometimes spelt after its Gallic form, R-H-U, in September 1825. And from the beginning, he was concerned to ground himself continually in the study of Scripture and to attend as best he could to the growth of what he called personal religion on the part of his parishioners. And by that he meant their sense of communion with the Father. Um, that's, that's what he was after. These were his primary questions. How are we to conceive of the mind of God in relation to man? And what is the attitude of the mind of man towards God, to which the knowledge of the mind of God towards us calls us? Now these are quotes, so that's a clunky, he's got clunky style. But how are we to conceive of the mind of God in relation to us? That's a fundamental question. Is God's relation to us one of law or one of love. And that seems to me to be a fundamental parting of the ways, one way or the other. It's not to say that love does not include law or that law can't include love. But <clears throat> for MacLeod Campbell, over and against the Calvinism of the Church of Scotland, God was conceived as a God who passionately loved us. <clears throat> and as a consequence, what then is the attitude of that we have towards God, knowing that God's will for us is that we know we are loved. He comments, quoting him, Our thoughts in relation to these two questions lie at the roots of all our thinking, and the first and primary interest of the gospel is in the personal answer to them which it gives. <clears throat> End of quote. And that's a key to MacLeod Campbell. He wants, he wants faith to be personal relational it is not assent to doctrine it is consent to a relationship that is established from God's side the singular goal of ministry he believed was an answer to the question as to God's will for himself as a minister 
and for those within his pastoral responsibility. And his constant quest through his study of scripture and theology was to the end <clears throat> of seeing himself, and these are all his images, seeing himself and his people in relation to what God willed him and them to be. What was God's will for the people? Thus he developed a theological apperception, a, a fundamental framework concerning what we are to believe with regard to God and what response this calls forth from us. Quoting him, a faith that is the door of hope to us. And this faith, this quest, this journey came to its full expression 25 or so years later when he worked on and published The Nature of the Atonement in 1856. He was an earnest young man and he understood the pastoral relationship to be a responsibility of solemn interest and hopeful promise. Quote, I venture to say that I met my people under the over-canopying love of God. That's a nice image. They're very welcome of me coming to them as the minister, no less than my hope in accepting that relation to them, had root in some faith, however vague, in the hope that is in God for man. And he set forth on the belief that he and his people met on a common ground, the ground of God's desire <clears throat> to be on their side. His ministry has that meaning or none at all. I have never lost the feeling, he wrote, of the impression made on me on the very first day of my parish visiting, at the close of that day's work, when the aged inmates of the last house to which I had been came with me to the brow of the height on which their cottage stood, and the one solemnly said, Give us plain doctrine, for we are a sleeping people. And the other solemnly quoted the words, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. To the end of the proper work of ministry, in his preaching as in his pastoral care, MacLeod Campbell's focus was upon the realization of the will of God towards people and the elicitation of the personal expression of grateful faith from them. Only when this is clearly and habitually in mind, he believed, would he know how to speak to his people. Citing Richard Baxter, the English Puritan, he would speak as a dying man to dying men and preach the gospel of eternal life given us in God's Son. For MacLeod Campbell, this and this alone is the true conception of the high calling of ministry. <clears throat> Needless to say, um, and this, this just is, needs to be right out front, um, he was no advocate for federal Calvinism. But nevertheless, he accepted the opening answers to the first two questions of the Westminster Shorter, Cate Shorter Catechism. He believed that man's end was to glorify and enjoy God. And it is man's end, and what he understood that to mean, that drove him forward and ineluctably led him to teach universal atonement and the corresponding response of personal holiness. 
Faith <coughs> is a way of life, the life of sonship towards God, quickened in those who respond to the gospel. <coughs> and you'll see that on page after page, this life of sonship. <coughs> um, I, I yeah. loved this quote from James Torrance in the intro, <coughs> talking of his uh, of Campbell. He said, his theology is one hammered out on the anvil of the parish ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was, he was emphasizing, I think, what you're emphasizing that his theology was driven by this, his concern. This, his concern that the people would appreciate the mind of God towards them, and the mind of God towards them is that they were God's sons. Um, in, in an inclusive sense, men and women were God's God's sons, participating in the sonship of Jesus. And as they were in Christ, <clears throat> participating in Christ's sonship, they were sons of the Father. And when they knew this, they would have peace with God in their heart. His teaching is summed up in a central verse from Proverbs twenty-three twenty-six. This is absolutely key to MacLeod Campbell. My son, give me thine heart. What he wanted was the heart's God, he believed, wanted the hearts of the people turned towards him in love. My son, this tells what I am to the heart of God. Give me thine heart. This tells the will of God concerning me, what the Father of my spirit desires as to me his offspring, with what manner of blessedness the blessed God who has given me a being would make my existence blessed. Give me your heart. So, <clears throat> incarnation and atonement are to the end of our life of sonship, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Sonship is no less than the communion with the Father and the Son in the Spirit, being heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. This was his vision. <clears throat> and out of this center, he preached and visited his people. Christianity, he said, is, to my mind, related to our relation to God as his offspring. So a life of sonship is the purpose of God for people, and scripture is for the purpose of our knowledge of that purpose. Sonship, then, was John MacLeod Campbell's deep spiritual and theological intuition, the fountain from which his ministry flowed, and then time became the ground for attack against him, and his subsequent demission from his pastoral charge. Let's take a little break from me speaking and uh, see if you have any questions. Um, I'll come to spell out the the basic argument of the nature of the atonement in a minute, but um, MacLeod Campbell's soteriology is a soteriology of satisfaction. Um, To satisfy the will of the Father. Christ satisfies the will of the Father that we would know that we are beloved. Um, and in this, he stands in for us, stands in our place. Uh, MacLeod Campbell has a high doctrine of the vicarious humanity of Christ. So his, his theology of the atonement is a substitutionary um, theology. All atonement theory is substitutionary, in which Christ stands in for us. But it's not a penal substitutionary atonement. And he just believed that the the Western Church got off on the wrong foot altogether with that. Um, Now, in the work I've been doing on him, I think MacLeod Campbell's 
um, allergy to the the Western Nardo Salutis is almost so extreme that perhaps aspects of a biblical doctrine, fully orbed biblical doctrine of the atonement, gets lost. Um, but his theological intuition um, that through our union with Christ we participate in the Son's relationship with the Father so that we in Christ are, are sons of God is, is a remarkable theological intuition. Um, let's see, where do I want to go? Um, there's a lot of an awful lot of detail um, that would just get you bogged down. Um, but maybe I should. Uh, McLeod Campbell believed that the proper center of ministry was found in declaring what God wills us to be in connection with what God has done in Christ that we might be it. The center of ministry is declaring what God wills us to be in connection with what God has done in Christ that we might be that. In different language, MacLeod Campbell saw the imperatives of faith in the light of the prior actuality of the indicative of grace. I mean, Bart, but a century before Bart. You are not your own, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which is God's. The, the gospel is the divine provision in Christ for the full meeting of the divine claim upon our lives. I used to say, he wrote in his retirement, I used to say, if you knew the mind of God towards you, as the gospel reveals it, if you knew about yourselves, what in the light of the gospel I know about you, knew as really your own unsearchable riches which you have in Christ, you must needs rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I only ask you to know what now is. I only labor to undeceive you in thinking that though it does not give you peace, you know it already. He contrasted his, his position <clears throat> with the position that led people to have no confidence in their salvation, um, whether through limited atonement, how did you know you were one of the elect, or through an extreme Arminianism uh, where have I had the right experience and have I made the right decision? So for MacLeod Campbell, everything was rooted, as it were, objectively in God, not in, um, not in our experience or not in our ascent to doctrine. Um, let me now turn to the nature of the atonement. And I think, I can't think of a more daunting book to read. Um, and, you know, in a few minutes of talking, hardly uh, master the compass 
of the complexity of, of his thinking. But his core position is explicable, I think. Here's the center of the argument, and uh, I'll, I'll speak fairly slowly here because this is important. Everything we say of the atonement is determined by what we know of the love of the Father towards us and of the Father's purpose for us as the Father is revealed by and in the Son. To that end, the sentence I started with, the faith of the atonement presupposes the faith of the Incarnation. For the Incarnation is the revelation of God's purpose for us, which is fulfilled or enacted through the atonement. The nature of the atonement is the working out of the meaning of the Incarnation. That's worth pondering. The nature of the atonement is the working out of the meaning of the Incarnation, which is that in Christ we know of and enjoy the love of God towards us. Thus, <coughs> because the atoning life of Jesus is his perfect sonship towards the Father and perfect brotherhood towards us, there is established in him the fundamental atoning exchange between the Father and the creation. And through our participation in union with Christ, we, as it were, get in on that. The goal of the atonement is to come, in his language, to the faith of God as the Father of our spirits. That strange quote, the strange line, the Father of our spirits, appears again mm. and again. It's his favorite uh, idiom, and it comes from Hebrews. I forget where in Hebrews, but it comes from Hebrews. But it means from a cloud Campbell, knowing that we are held in a special place in God's heart as God's offspring. This is to live in a personal relationship with God, accepting our sonship and welcoming our life in communion with God. So the twofold purpose of the atonement is in Christ to know God as the Father of our spirits and to live the life of faith in obedience and love to God in the spirit of sonship. To know God as the Father of our spirit and to live a life of sonship. It is as having a place in the kingdom of God that we understand the atonement. For it is our personal relation to God as the Father of our spirits that the atonement belongs. Out of disorder in that relation, our relationship with the Father, has the need for atonement arisen. To bring that relation into harmony is the end which is contemplated. In other words, the problem that has to be addressed is not broken law, but a broken relationship with the Father. <clears throat> and that's what's driving him. MacLeod Campbell worked out the central tenets of his atonement theology, famously in retrospective and prospective aspects. And the two chapters on this, if you read nothing else, and the tendency will be to get bogged down in the book. Um, can I see the, the chapters again? I think it's, is it five, five and six? Um, 
the the great chapters are um, six and seven. The great chapters are chapters six and seven. And if you read <coughs> nothing else, <coughs> these are the chapters to read, where he works out the, the atonement retrospectively, that is, with respect to our past, and prospectively, that is, with respect to our future. Uh, very briefly, <coughs> retrospectively, Christ deals with the people on the part of God and deals with God on behalf of the people. Now, <coughs> those of you who have been in my classes will immediately recognize the bidirectional or dual action Christology. This <coughs> comes from Athanasius, the, the downward arrow, as it were, where Christ deals on the part of God with us, and the upward arrow where Christ, uh, uh, we, we now know, God comes, Christ comes from the Father and deals with us on behalf of God. And then upward arrow deals with God on behalf of us. So he is both word of God, act of God towards us, and he is word of humankind, act of humankind towards God. So retrospectively, MacLeod Campbell picks up this theology. As I recall, he never mentions Athanasius in the nature of the atonement, but this is the classical Athanasian theology. <clears throat> so this encompasses the retrospective, first of all, the downward movement of God and Christ towards us, and the upward movement of God and Christ towards God with respect to our past sins and how they are dealt with. Prospectively, Christ honors the Father in the sight of humankind, and the Son deals with the Father on our behalf with respect to our future life in God. So you've got four quadrants, and it might even be helpful to diagram this um, once you read it, just to get the prospect, the prospective and retrospective aspects together, each with a, a downward and an upward dimension. Christ reveals the life of sonship in response to God's fatherhood as the downward movement of God towards us. And Christ offers the true human response to the Father as the upward movement of God in Christ towards the Father, into which life we participate. Thus we have two parallel movements, from and to God, looking backwards and forwards respectively. That, in a nutshell is what the nature of the atonement is. Now, <clears throat> almost all atonement theories that I can think of are retrospective. God dealing with a problem in some manner. It's MacLeod Campbell's genius is that he introduces this prospective that it's not just God dealing with a problem, but also God creating a future for us. Um, it's just quite remarkable. Somewhere in the book he, he writes, it is not the atonement that our sins are forgiven. We must yet be restored to communion with the Father. So there you have it, the forgiveness of sins, but the restoration to a future life in glory with the Father. Now, <clears throat> that's the fundamental argument. What's hard about the book, even apart from its writing style, is he doesn't tell you what he's doing in terms of the structure of the book. There is a, an anatomy to the book um, that has taken me at least 30 years to find out. And I don't know if anybody's ever discovered this. This may be unique to me, maybe not, but I've never read this anywhere. But in, in chapters 6 and 7, um, he lays out the retrospect 
retrospective and prospective aspects of the atonement. And the rest of the book is given over to a series of defenses of the argument. Um, <clears throat> and this is, uh, the, I, I hope this, this is helpful. And let me just quickly run through what the defenses of the argument are. The first defense is characterized by the inward relations between the Father and the Son and what that means for us. Now, this is so important that the atonement is not worked out instrumentally in terms of an external act that the Son does in order to ameliorate the Father's wrath or displeasure towards us. The atonement is worked out in terms of the internal relations between the Father and the Son. So not externally and instrumentally, but internally and ontologically. At the center of the first defense, there is an extended theological meditation on John 14.6, wherein the character of salvation serves to determine the nature of the atonement. No one comes to the Father but by the Son, is the great and all-including necessity that is revealed to us by the atonement. Uh, For MacLeod Campbell, the living way to the Father is the meaning of Hebrews 10, 19 and following, where the reference is to having the boldness to enter into the holiest of holies, which is opened for us by Jesus Christ. So, no one comes to the Father but by the Son, which means that we enter through the Son into the Holy of Holies, Holiest. And the characteristic of this is the gift and obligation of sonship. The blood of Jesus cleanses us for worship worthy of sonship. Christ then, for MacLeod Campbell, is the propitiation, the hilasmos, the atoning sacrifice. But understand this, propitiation is not a work of Christ understood in an instrumental manner, but the living Christ himself, who in the unity of his person brings God to us and us to God. That is to say, Christ is (coughs) reconciliation. Arguing in this way, McLeod Campbell acknowledges that he's making an unconventional point, although not not unique point, but the force of the gospel derived from John 14.6 is allowed <coughs> to act as the hermeneutical lens through which he examines the nature of the atonement. How do we get to the mercy seat of God? The salvation needed, in other words, is for us to have a way of drawing near to God. Christ has opened the way (coughs) for us so that we have access in one spirit to the Father, Ephesians (coughs) 2.18. The atonement is not a punishment for sin, but a spiritual and moral access to the Father through Christ's confessing of our sin and in him having our adoption as sons of God. <clears throat> now, MacLeod Campbell is famously described his doctrine as being vicarious penance. <clears throat> That's the conventional, that he confesses on our behalf. Nowhere 
anywhere does he use that phrase. <clears throat> and there's the moral argument. How can somebody else confess somebody else's sin uh, efficaciously? You know, you can't confess my sin on my behalf. <clears throat> How could that be? And I, I have no idea why he didn't use this argument, but it's not in the book, but it seems to me to work. Why was Jesus baptized? It was a baptism of repentance. He who had no sin was baptized with a baptism of repentance for us. So in his baptism, Christ has already made a, excuse me, a vicarious repentance. I have no problem with that. For McLeod Campbell, peace with God is none other than our participation in the life of Christ, both direct and immediate, having a moral and spiritual meaning by which we are now free to draw near to God and have communion with the Father. I mean, this is good news. Um, why, why then is there a cross for Campbell? <clears throat> I mean, it, it he, seems uh, like in that theology, if you've got an <laughs> incarnation, you've got a baptism, there doesn't seem to be... What's we'll, the need for the cross? We'll, we'll come to that as one of the defenses. Okay. Just like me. Um, because that too is a, <clears throat> is a criticism... Um, <clears throat> the saving event from McLeod Campbell is not the cross. The saving event from McLeod Campbell is the person of Jesus. Mm. But, <clears throat> but the cross is the wages of sin. He bears the consequence of sin, but it's not punishment. And nowhere in the New Testament does it say that the Father punishes the Son. <clears throat> McLeod Campbell does not shy away from the anticipated criticism. Quote, granting that our true well-being is to be ultimately found in peace and reconciliation <coughs> in the spiritual sense of the words. <coughs> Excuse me. Have we not at, at first need of peace and reconciliation in a legal sense? His reply is audacious. Quote, If an atonement be adequate morally and spiritually, it will of necessity be legally adequate. It will be sufficient in relation to our receiving Adoption of sons, if that is the case, it must be sufficient for our redemption under the law. Were this not the case, the argument continues, would we not subordinate the gospel to the law? <clears throat> we are not under law, but under grace. And he, shows, he, he, he cites Philip's words to Jesus in support. Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. In other words... The law is dealt with insofar as we have communion with the Father and the law is overcome um, from a cloud Campbell. Were this not the case, we would be under the authority of the Father as in subordination to God as a moral governor. This comes back to then, who is God? Or, or what is the law? Is the law given... <coughs> as the consequence of the covenant, not as the condition for the covenant. And if in Christ the law is fulfilled, the covenant is fulfilled, then the law is fulfilled uh, in Christ. So he understands that Westminster Calvinism is going to resist him yep. as being, not taking law seriously enough. And that's why he was expelled from the ministry, not for being a universalist, but for being an antinomian. 
that we were not, we are, that the law has been fulfilled, so we cannot be under the law. But that is not to say that it, there's no obligation about how we are to live in Christ. He's very, very clear that we are under a moral obligation. Um, but it comes out of the heart filled with joy and peace mm-hmm. and thankfulness. Um, salvation is participation in the love of the Father's heart and not the favorable sentence of a judge setting the mind at ease in reference to the demands of the law. If there's a familiar phrase of MacLeod Campbell's, it's that our life is the Amen of faith to the Amen of Christ. The Amen of the individual spirit to the Amen of the Son to the mind of the Father in relation to man. That is saving faith. Our Amen, when we say Amen to the work of Christ, that indicates sonship. Thus the first defense amounts to our participation through Christ in the father-son relationship which reveals and enacts the father's will concerning us. The second defense of the argument is the consideration of the external and historical life of Christ from the manger to the cross. What does it mean that the son honored the father in our sight? Or more broadly, what is the actual history of our redemption? His answer is is brief. Christ had to taste in all its bitterness that enmity to God to which he was exposing himself in coming to men in his Father's name. He lives out the judgment of the Father upon sin. Already here, the theologian's eye is cast in the direction of the cross rather than the manger. Although dealing with the cross head-on, he leaves to the third defense. Coming to the fore in the second defense is the outworking of the importance of Psalm 40, verse 8, which is another (coughs) of his key verses. Psalm 40, verse 8. Lo, I come to do thy will. Christ's ministry was the outcome of his sonship in which which he served the will of the Father. This is the great principle from MacLeod Campbell. Nothing is to be believed concerning the atonement which is not the working out of this principle. That here (coughs) God is revealing himself to us (coughs) and Jesus Christ is humankind yielding to that will. He is both the revelation of God and the yielding to the will of God. As to our Lord's personal ministry, its distinguishing character is to be seen in this, that the ministry was the outcoming of the life of sonship. What he spoke as what he did was a part of what he was. So it's not instrumental. It's it's who he, he, he was in himself as son of the Father. In other words, this is me, Christ himself was the gospel, not just what he did. Or to say it differently, Christ's whole counsel and act was to keep the Father before us insofar as the gospel, Jesus Christ, is our filial relation to God and brotherhood towards one another. Turn that thing off, Jordan. I need to get a glass of water on my throat. So... We're still in the second defense. Um, 
And uh, McLeod Campbell's theory uh, certainly uh, might be most prone to floundering on the rocks of the criticism that he doesn't deal adequately with Christ's suffering and death. Um, with respect to Christ's suffering, programmatically, McLeod Campbell states, quote, I entirely feel that our Lord's physical sufferings, viewed simply as physical sufferings and without relation to the mind that was in the sufferer, could not adequately explain the awful intensity of the feelings which accompanied his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He cites Matthew's account of Jesus intimating that he could ask the Father for more than twelve legions of angels in his defence. And McLeod Campbell argues that this suggests not a wrath coming from the Father, but a power of evil to which the Father permitted to have its course. Interesting. Thus negatively, the core argument of the book re-emerges again. The Lord's sufferings are neither at the hand of God, nor are they to be regarded as penal in their aspect as sufferings merely. Christ suffers because of humankind's enmity towards and rejection of God, not because of God's anger towards him or punishment of him. Thus the positive argument is to contemplate Christ's sufferings in its spiritual aspect as the response of love to this human evil against God. For the, love, for the life of Christ. Sonship was precisely that of perfect love towards God as Father and perfect love towards his brothers and sisters. He came in his Father's name and was not accepted. John 5.43 <clears throat> McLeod Campbell in the second defence brings back the bi-directional or dual structured Christology of the retrospective and prospective aspects <clears throat> um, and maybe I just get too much in the weeds if I go into that because it gets um <clears throat> but in well nigh bullet points he drives home his argument quoting him while subjected to the hour and power of darkness sustained by the simple faith of that original fatherliness of the father's heart which he had come forth to reveal and to reveal by trusting it he now perfects his glorifying of the Father's name by being seen trusting in that name alone when brought into the extremest need of a sure hold of God. The sinless one is seen trusting simply in that name which he had come to reveal to sinners, that they also might trust in it and be saved. Thus the Father's response to that trust is preached as the gospel to the chief of sinners. <clears throat> uh, where are we? <clears throat> let, let me now turn <clears throat> to the, the kind of nub of the defense, the third defense. So the first defense is the father-son relation. The second defense is his discussion of the sufferings in general as being the affliction of hu the human uh, he, he suffers at the hands of, 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 of people <clears throat> and the third defense now is his understanding of the cross <clears throat> McLeod Campbell's um, <clears throat> my throat's 
Iraq here. <coughs> just like I, I got a kind of Qatar just kind of sticks in my vocal cords. Okay, let's go. Is it on? It's, it's on. Okay. Um, McLeod Campbell states that he has nothing to add to what has gone before, but the constant reference to the cross in Scripture and Christian tradition <clears throat> suggests that the whole woof of redemption demands its treatment by him. The text that controls his discussion of the cross is Luke twenty-three forty-six. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. This commendation is the secret of the life of Jesus. Not only the faith announced at his dying. It is the perfect manifestation and consummation of Christ's faith. That's not just the incarnation as such affected the atonement, which is the common critique of the Athanasian position, but the life of Christ as it progressed, his living of his life, under the fa this is McLeod Campbell, under the Father's educating him as the captain of our salvation. <clears throat> in substance, in spirit, he has all along said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. In actual death, he now said so. <clears throat> in his commendation of himself to the Father, Christ is tasting death while doing so. This declaring the Father's name is the primary act of faith, and it is done by Christ, fully knowing the religious mind towards God, fully knowing the mind of God towards sin. <clears throat> but it was not only sin that here had to be dealt with, but God's law with the penalty of death. God has made death the wages of sin. But Christ's death for us was no substitutionary punishment, but was, in the familiar terms of MacLeod Campbell, a moral and spiritual sacrifice for sin. Quote, <clears throat> and this is dramatic theology, I think. While death taking place simply as such, and the wages of sin <clears throat> had been no atonement, Death filled with that moral and spiritual meaning in relation to God and his righteous law, which it had, which it had as, as tasted by Christ and passed through the spirit of sonship, was the perfecting of atonement. <coughs> let, me, let me read that again. <coughs> Sorry, I'm getting all <coughs> clogged up here. And part of the trouble we have is his, his language is very clunky. While death taking place simply as such, and the wages of sin had been no atonement, death filled with that moral and spiritual meaning in relation to God and his righteous law, which it had as tasted by Christ, and passed through in the spirit of sonship, was the perfecting of the atonement. That is to say, Christ met his death not as punishment, but on behalf of people in righteous amen to God's judgment on sin. Mm -hmm. 
That is, in his death, Christ honoured God's law. Insofar as we broke it, Christ confessed our sin and then took the consequence, the wages upon himself. When, you, when you're out of harmony with the relationship with God, you die. In doing so, Christ effected the atonement. In this way, God in Christ both condemns our sin and opens up the way of sonship for us. So, so he's pressing back against the in, idea that God has to punish or yeah. have some kind of blood right, satisfaction right, right, for... Right, right, right. <clears throat> McLeod Campbell's atonement theory is a satisfaction theory, but it's not a blood satisfaction theory. And it's a satisfaction theory insofar as Christ <clears throat> lives the life of sonship. And that's what God wants for us, the life of sonship. But So God's de- he fulfills God's desire for us, satisfies God's desire, so that we, in Christ, saying amen to Christ's sonship, we become sons by participating in the satisfaction of Christ's sonship to the Father. But it's not a blood satisfaction. <clears throat> but he suffers the consequence of the broken relationship with God, but not as punishment, but as bearing <coughs> in himself the the consequence of sin. Does, does he go back and look at that in the Old Testament at all? Not much. Sacrificial not, system? Not much. <coughs> no, for that you'll have to read my chapter on Torms, um, where Torms has a huge, when you read Atonement, a huge uh, amount of space given over to the Padah, Goel and Kippur theories of the atonement in the Old Testament. (coughs) McLeod Campbell now is profoundly redefining the theology of atoning propitiation. Understanding Christ's death as a propitiation for sin tasted in the spirit of sonship and in unity with the Father in his condemnation of sin means not that the Father accepted Christ's death as a vicarious punishment, but that the Father accepted Christ vicariously bearing the wages of sin, death. If you you can get that point, you've got it. Um, The Father accepted Christ's death not as vicarious punishment, but accepted Christ vicariously bearing the consequence of sin, which is death. God's judgment is propitiated not by punishment, by punishment born, but by Christ accepting that the wages are being paid on our behalf. The positive point is made clearer were we to say that the Father accepts Christ bearing the consequence of sin, which is death on our behalf. In his familiar terms, faith is the Amen, to Christ, amen, to the divine judgment in relation to sin, which was the death of Christ, and gave it atoning virtue. <coughs> MacLeod Campbell ends this third defense with an expression of intellectual relief. He believes he has discovered that the sense of the evil and guilt of sin which is received when the sufferings of death, the sufferings and death of Christ come upon our minds, becomes not the measure of what God can inflict as punishment, but the revelation of what God can feel. 
this is really interesting, <coughs> heavily psychologized account has replaced the traditionally dominant legalized account. <coughs> Again, it's all cast in terms of father-son relations. He writes, I feel it morally and spiritually a relief <coughs> not to be required to recognize legal fictions as having a place in this high region in which the awful realities of sin and holiness, spiritual death and spiritual life, are the subjects of a transaction between the Father and the Son in the Eternal Spirit. <clears throat> the, the legal aspect of the Western Ordo Salutis and the propitiation through punishment <clears throat> and death in other words, McLeod Campbell sees as a transactional understanding. Well, what he wants to drive to is not a transactional understanding, <clears throat> but a filial, relational, experiential understanding, the end of which is communion. It's just fundamentally different categories. Uh, in offering an adequate repentance, Christ offers the only satisfaction to divine justice that could be called moral and spiritual, as opposed to a legal atonement or propitiation. And with that he rests his case. <coughs> the question is, has he made his case and is it convincing? <coughs> I'll come back to reflecting on this question, has he made his case and is it convincing? But let me now give the fourth <coughs> defense of the argument. And these are all coming in successive chapters. But following chapter 7, what you have to realize is that he's, he's not really developing his argument. He's already made his case. But he's now really defending his position by unpacking it further. So the fourth defense, perhaps as an afterthought, McLeod Campbell seems to want one more round of defense in setting forth his position over and against the penal theory of the atonement. <clears throat> he offers four brief points with regard, oddly, at first blush, regard to light, second, unity and simplicity, third, natural relations with Christianity in other respects, and fourth, harmony with the divine righteousness. <clears throat> so first, with regard to light, in the fourth defense. We recall the method of approach was to see the atonement in its own light. This is his critical realism at work. Psalm 48, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God, is reintroduced as the key to the atonement, and God is love <coughs> is reasserted as the law of the spirit of the life that was in Christ. These assertions are once again posited in opposition to the penal view of the atonement. Quote, a horror of darkness without one ray of light. So, the contrast now between light and dark. <clears throat> Second, while having dealt with the atonement in regard to the bi-directional or dual action nature of Christ's life and ministry, the up and the down and upward arrows, MacLeod Campbell trusts that the unity and simplicity of Christ's life has been clear all along. It is all grace reigning through righteousness unto eternal life. All is in harmony with the purpose, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. This end is expressed 
as an unbroken testimony by the Father to the Son and an unbroken consciousness in the Son as to hearing the voice of the Father, abiding in the Father's love, strong and living in the Father's favour, able to drink the cup given to him because it was received from the Father's hand and commending himself at the end to the Father. The full array of Christ's life was doing the will of the Father <clears throat> in a consciousness of oneness with him. Third, if the atonement <coughs> is the form which eternal life took in Christ, then the atonement is the development of the incarnation. <coughs> We've already seen this. This is the key starting argument in the whole book. And there's the ground for his insistence that there is a unity between the atonement as he has expounded it and Christianity as a whole. Back of this, as it were, is Christ's trust in the fatherly heart of the Father, which is the pulse and breath of our new life in sonship through union with Christ. Again, this is posited over and against the penal view where there's a sharp break between Christ's death as punishment in which we cannot share and that in Christ which we do share. Clearly in MacLeod Campbell's mind, there is an unbridgeable chasm between being under the law and being under grace. He comments, No doubt Christ did fulfill the law, did fulfill all righteousness, not, however, in a legal spirit, but as the Son of God following God as a dear child. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Four. MacLeod Campbell believes his theory of the atonement is in harmony with divine righteousness. His argument is this. The highest honouring of God's law cannot be recognised as an atonement from sin from the results contemplated. The measure we take of eternal life must be the measure of the atonement. They must be congruent. The life of salvation is the life of sonship, which is a higher righteousness than legal obedience. Again, we see the same points coming back again and again. These four points briefly noted, and indeed the whole book itself, may be summed up in as the relation that the scheme of redemption stands to the fatherliness of God. In that father, fatherliness has the atonement been now representing as originating. The moral and spiritual expiation for sin which Christ has which Christ has made has dealt with the justice of God seen in terms of gospel rather than in terms of law. Sonship alone is the power to accomplish our reconciliation with God. Reconciliation, the life of sonship is the sum of redemption and its source is the fatherliness of God. When he means fatherliness, he's, that's his way of trying to express that the very nature of God for us is love rather than law. Yes. It's a neat phrase. Yes. <coughs> Faith, then, is the life of sonship towards the Father and the truth of brotherhood towards other. The Son draws us to the Father, the Father draws us in the Spirit to the Son. Thus, in a great summary sentence to the book, sentence I love, 
<clears throat> Therefore Christ, as the Lord of our spirits and our life, devotes us to God and devotes us to men in the fellowship of his self-sacrifice. That's, that's the whole book right there. <clears throat> now what can we make of this? I want to look at some... If this is what you want, I'll, just, I'll keep... Is that helpful? Look at some standard critical perspectives on McLeod Campbell. Uh, first of all, satisfaction. The late Scottish theologian, one of my own teachers, John McIntyre, McIntyre um, <coughs> and Torrance were the two bulls in New College and um, had a somewhat difficult relationship with one another. Um, not helped after the retirement <coughs> with um, Alistair McGrath's book on Torrance, uh, where he was very critical of McIntyre and McIntyre was very hurt by it. But John McIntyre in his book, um, the, uh, <coughs> what's his book called? The Shape of Soteriology, <coughs> noted, I think helpfully, that John McLeod Campbell is to be interpreted as standing within the sphere of advancing a satisfaction theory of the atonement, <coughs> which of course comes from Anselm, although McLeod Campbell did not designate his work as such. <coughs> To his mind, the satisfaction theory, McLeod Campbell's mind, denoted God's punishment and was represented in those theologians against whom he was writing, particularly John Owen and other Federalists. Nevertheless, <coughs> McLeod Campbell does offer a variation on the satisfaction model. <coughs> the satisfaction theory begins with Tertullian but comes to full expression in Anselm's Cur Deus Homo written between 1096 and 1098. Anselm's theory states that God requires our obedience. In sin we are incapable of offering that obedience. Making good that broken relationship with God requires satisfaction involving full obedience to God's will and reparation for the dishonor caused to God by our disobedience. Out of the plenitude of God's love, and for the reordering of the beauty of creation, God sent his son, the Deus Homo, the God-man, who made satisfaction by obeying God's will and offering the reparation required. McIntyre observes that we had to wait nearly 800 years for another atonement theory of satisfaction. McLeod Campbell's The Nature of the Atonement. What is different this time is that Christ does not offer repara reparation to assuage the offence against divine honour, but offers a perfect repentance by way of acknowledging the legitimacy of God's judgment against sin. This acknowledgement, confessing our sin before the Father, <coughs> is the satisfaction to God's righteousness. So McLeod Campbell offers us a variant on the satisfaction theory that amounts to taking it in a new direction. Leanne Van Dyke, um, who is the Dean at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan, and a wonderful person, I know personally, Leanne Van Dyke also offers an account of McLeod Campbell's atonement theory as a satisfaction account, but she, she bases her discussion of McLeod Campbell in a conversation with John Calvin, <coughs> whom oddly McIntyre missed out altogether. Calvin in, understood the atonement affected through both the life and death of Christ, 
in which satisfaction is made to God for human sin. Calvin offered more than a penal perspective on the death of Christ. Christ's obedient life, his active obedience, as well as his sacrificial death, belong in the account. For MacLeod Campbell, likewise, Christ's life and death are entailed in giving satisfaction to the Father, though as always through a vicarious confession <coughs> in which Christ, quote-unquote, absorbs the wrath of the Father. <coughs> Thus the first critical point is this. Stipulating that MacLeod Campbell's atonement theory is a variant on the satisfaction theory, is satisfaction a helpful theory of the atonement? As we have seen, characterized by Anselm, either punishment or satisfaction, as Anselm, a distinction drawn more sharply than by Calvin, satisfaction is entirely framed by MacLeod Campbell negatively as rejection of punishment, but his essential argument is positive. Satisfaction for Anselm became the way by which God did not have to exact punishment upon us. There is a substitution. <clears throat> but it is not a penal substitution for MacLeod Campbell. Undoubtedly, there is something deeply problematic in the notion of an innocent person being published in the place of a guilty person and declaring that just. And nowhere does the New Testament say that God has to be reconciled to us by divine punishment induced by human sin. Rather, we are to be reconciled to God. MacLeod Campbell turns the satisfaction theory in a distinctly positive direction when he emphasizes that it arises out of father-son relations and is ethical and spiritual in nature, not legal. Satisfaction is humans being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. With MacLeod Campbell, <coughs> the threat of punishment is not only avoided, it no longer lurks anywhere in the background. Satisfaction, then, is an appropriate scheme, but it seems that it is not dependent upon Anselm's either or, either punishment or satisfaction. With MacLeod Campbell, satisfaction has an entirely positive content. <clears throat> I think it needs to be said that however we understand the atonement, sin must there be dealt with, for the sinner is called to repentance. And God's judgment with respect to sin must there be dealt with, for God's holiness will not be mocked. There is no way around this without massive soteriological reductionism, either with respect to the extent of sin or of God's holiness. MacLeod Campbell's reconstruction of the satisfaction theory goes some way towards avoiding this reductionism if vicarious repentance stands the test of examination. That's, that's it. Further, whether satisfaction goes far enough, we will have to judge when, when I look at the accounts of the atonement by Macintosh and Torrance, but that's later on in the book. For now, as an interim judgment, I find myself much moved by the theological intuition of the love and mercy of God and the setting of the atonement within father-son relations while not casting aside the debt of sin and the righteousness of God's judgment against it, which satisfaction theory demands. MacLeod Campbell's move away from the notion of sin as a dishonouring of God 
asked whether he had Anselm in mind or not, and towards the confession of human sin with respect to God's righteousness, is a step in the right direction, away from Anselm's limited notion of satisfaction. MacLeod Campbell was able to make his move away from satisfaction from, through punishment and implicitly away from satisfaction through reparation to satisfaction as confession because he saw that satisfaction had to be understood not in terms of legal requirements or divine justice but that it had to be understood in terms of dealing with the Father as the Father has a living will and heart. In other words, satisfaction has to deal with the broken heart of God, not God's sense of being dishonoured. <clears throat> that is to say, MacLeod Campbell's categories by which he developed his doctrine of satisfaction were filial and relational, referring to moral and spiritual relations between the Father and the Son. As Torrance noted, Christ's atoning sacrifice did not have to do with a penal infliction coming upon Christ from without, but one which he received and endorsed in the depths of his vicarious life and divine humanity. <clears throat> a second observation <clears throat> regarding MacLeod Campbell is, is his account too psychological? McIntyre observes that MacLeod Campbell's atonement theory amounts to an ethicizing of divine attitudes. The process by which soteriological categories have been given personalized and ethical qualities had its likely beginning with MacLeod Campbell's doctrine of Christ's filial faithfulness towards and revelation of the Father. Hitherto we have faced the antinomy punishment or repentance. But let us put this otherwise. Divine law and human disobedience or divine love and a broken relationship with that love? Clearly two different theological intuitions are in view. On the one hand, atonement is set in a legal context and is made by a suffering which mitigates the wrath of God against sin. On the other, atonement is set in terms of filial relations and is made by Christ living out the ontological relation between incarnation as the Son of the Father, revealing God as our Father and dealing with God on our behalf. In the former case, the emphasis is on Christ fulfilling a transactional requirement. I think that's a big issue. In the latter, the emphasis on Christ's filial relation and revelation of the Father's heart. The Chicago theologian, uh, historical theologian, <coughs> Brian Gerrish pronounced MacLeod Campbell's atonement theology, quote, as the protest of grace against the resurgence of legalistic piety in the Church of the Reformation. That given, it may be rightly said that MacLeod Campbell advances a theology of Christian experience grounded objectively in Jesus Christ towards the Father and subjectively in Jesus Christ towards us and in us. And you find this in Calvin. Leanne Van Dyke sums up MacLeod Campbell's foundational motivating principle as the intention, quote, to give an account of the experience of the Christian believer 
of having been dealt graciously by God. Campbell's atonement theology is through and through an experiential theology. End of quote. I think she's right on the money. But can the case be made that in making this argument, MacLeod Campbell has cast the atonement too much in psychological and anthropomorphic terms? This certainly amounts to the critique made by James Goodlow. Uh, Jim Goodlow and I are friends, know him well. Um, Goodlow did his dissertation under uh, Gerrish at the University of uh, Chicago. Goodlow vigorously makes the argument that MacLeod Campbell's understanding of Christian experience led to his theology of the atonement. The consciousness of being a child of God is the base of the primary Christian experience and, argues Goodlow, the nature of the atonement is worked back, as it were, to meet the demands of that experience. The nature of the Christian experience requires the removal of legal and forensic categories and their replacement with personal and relational categories. Thus, Goodlow argues that MacLeod Campbell moved from consciousness of being a child of God through repentance, which requires assurance of faith, which requires universal pardon, which rests upon a universal atonement, which then reveals the true character of God as love. Thus, the nature of Christian experience ultimately prescribes the nature of the atonement. Good law is at pains to note this turn towards interiority and the personal. He understands that McLeod Campbell is not losing an objective dimension to the atonement or that he has a low view of scripture, but it's the understanding of Christian experience that informs his Christology and his selections from and interpretations of scripture. Now, at this point, Schleiermacher had not been translated into English. That did not come until James Stewart and H.R. Mackintosh translated the Christian faith in the 1920s. And I don't know that uh, MacLeod Campbell read German. So I don't think you can just pin Schleiermacher on him. Goodlaw's analysis leads to this conclusion. The entire significance of Campbell's understanding of the atonement in these personal categories as a natural development of the Incarnation is that the atonement has a spiritual and moral power to transform us as persons. The entire purpose of the atonement is that it is to be reproduced in us. What Christ experienced, we are to experience. That is to say, father son relations. Goodlow turns MacLeod Campbell into a Scottish soteriologically oriented Schleiermacher who builds his theology from the consciousness of being a child of God. While Goodlow's account is well balanced, erudite and clearly written, I find his conclusions unconvincing for one overarching reason. MacLeod Campbell's basic theological intuition concerning God. How God sees us what God wills for us. I'm going to type on that. What God wills for us. And the act of God in Christ to bring us back into communion with God are through and through from the perspective of God's love. MacLeod Campbell's pastoral heart longed for people to know this God and be at peace with this God. 
Undoubtedly, MacLeod's Campbell's metaphors and categories are relation and personal, well nigh exclusively so, and this gives his account a certain lack of balance, for there are other soteriological metaphors and categories in scripture and Christian tradition for which a place should be found. But Goodlow claims too much with his assistance that MacLeod Campbell cast the atonement in terms of Christian experience of being a child of God. Post MacLeod Campbell, no theory of the atonement can now be advanced that is devoid of filial, personal and relational categories. The theological intuition of the love of God over God's justice and law is an apperception that must rightly frame our interpretation of scripture. And MacLeod Campbell is surely correct in his insight that the faith of the atonement presupposes the faith of the incarnation. That is to say, the atonement is to be seen in the light of the incarnation and the fulfilment of God's purpose for humankind which the incarnation intends. The meaning of the incarnation unfolds as the atonement insofar as we look at the atonement as the revealing of God's goal for humankind, namely standing in a filial relation with God as a child of God. That statement compels assent. Otherwise, God is mercantile in God's salvation. Got that word from my wife. However, limiting atonement to MacLeod Campbell's categories will not be adequate, but neither is excluding them adequate or satisfying. A fuller, of the, a fuller account of the atonement must yet be made while recognising MacLeod Campbell's contribution. Now, I need to say something about vicarious penance, <clears throat> because this is the most common critique, most common complaint, that there is no such thing as a coherent doctrine of vicarious penance. Although MacLeod Campbell nowhere uses the term, it is the currency of critique. The first account of this critique solicited a comment from MacLeod Campbell, when some, a, a, a contemporary wrote a, a book review, which he added as a note, chapter 6 at the end of the nature of the atonement a reviewer made his point by citing MacLeod Campbell that all the elements of perfect repentance a perfect sorrow and a perfect contrition were found in Christ except the personal consciousness of sin the reviewer then added this exception however contains just the essential element to the whole that is to say has MacLeod Campbell replaced a legal fiction with a moral or spiritual fiction? MacLeod Campbell's rebuttal is that he does not see Christ's confession of our sin before the Father as a substitute for our confession. That seems to imply that whatever it was that Christ did in confessing our sin to the Father does not take away from us the need to confess our own sin. In other words, Christ's confession was not a vicarious confession in the sense that there would be no need for our confession, although it was a perfect repentance. MacLeod Campbell judges that if he had said that Christ offered a substitute confession in our stead to save us from the necessity of repenting, the reviewer would have made a fatal objection to the argument. We must still make our own confession, he insists, but we do so because Christ has shown us the Father's heart and will towards us. And doing so, we come to find ourselves under a moral and spiritual persuasion, not a legal obligation, to honour the love of God and make our repentance. <clears throat>
in MacLeod Campbell's terms, this is to find ourselves in the position of sonship. What was MacLeod Campbell feeling after with regard to Christ's confession of sin and the moral and spiritual persuasion of which he speaks? On the one hand, Christ revealed the Father, which revelation includes the judgment of God against sin. In this context, Christ bears the burden as a man of sorrows because he looked on sinners with God's eyes and felt their burden with God's heart. In this way, Christ condemned sin and showed the Father's judgment. Dealing with God on our behalf, Christ's oneness of mind with the Father took the form of a perfect confession of our sins, a perfect Amen from within humankind to the judgment of God. This was an acceptable satisfaction to God's righteous heart of love, and much more than any punishment could ever be. In wonderful words, there would be more atoning worth in one tear of the true and perfect sorrow which the memory of the, the past would awaken in this now holy spirit than in endless ages of penal woe. Lovely. Thus Christ entered into the terrible mystery of sin's alienation and confessed the truth of God's holy judgment upon it. H.R. McIntosh sums it up. The feeling of God concerning sin has found its utterly satisfying response. By faith, which is the gift of the spirit of sonship, we come to participate in Christ's Amen from within our humanity to God's judgment upon our sin, thus to enjoy the Father as our Father. This amounts to a redefinition of the mind, of the mind purpose and character of God vis-à-vis -vis Westminster Calvinism. For God is here understood Christologically and soteriologically rather than abstractly. Well, if folks have any energy to keep listening to this, um, let's now look at Macintosh's criticisms. The first is an obvious one, that vicarious penance nowhere appears in the New Testament. But neither is vicarious penance, as it is presumed to be understood, found in the pages of John MacLeod Campbell. Secondly, Macintosh observes the obvious point that vicarious penance is not true to life, for penance implies consciousness of guilt. If Christ was penitent, it would seem he must have felt guilty in some manner. But if he was without sin, feelings of guilt would not have been possible for him. Thus the logic of guilt and penitence forces the conclusion that Christ neither felt the former nor did the latter. Thirdly, Macintosh states that the atonement is something provided or done by God. Whatever constitutes the central aspects of the atonement must be predicable of God. But surely it makes no sense to say that penitence is predicable of God. In his defense, these words from the posthumously published Fragments of Truth, late the book, find MacLeod Campbell entirely in agreement with Macintosh. The blood is human, but the person is divine. It is the man who dies, but it is God who made the atonement. In a positive note, Macintosh seems to advocate what in fact is MacLeod Campbell's point. Christ's sufferings lay in his awareness and acceptance of the pain that sin caused God. Thus it was Jesus' very being as God that wrought out and discharged his vocation to be saviour in his life and death, revealing the love of the Father and confessing the deadliness of sin, even unto his own death. 
even if vicarious penitence as conventionally understood leads us astray. MacLeod Campbell's point remains. Christ made a perfect acknowledgement of the righteous judgment of God. Unto the cross, Christ acquiesces in God's judgment. McIntosh judges, however, that MacLeod Campbell has not yet said enough at the point of Christ's death. With his finger on the mark, he asks, why was a verbal acknowledgement not enough? Why did Christ have to die? Torn suggests that what MacLeod Campbell was feeling after may be made clearer by the terms poena and poenitentia found in protistic Latin. Well, of course, that's obvious, isn't it? <clears throat> the former, poena, can refer to the external infliction, while the latter, poenitentia, can refer to the internal counterpart within a person. Christ endured both God's judgment and the acceptance of the legitimacy of that judgment. He took that judgment into himself. Thus Torns concludes, Christ wrought out in our human nature and in our human soul complete agreement with the Father in his righteous condemnation of our sin, his grief and sorrow over our rebellion and alienation. In vicarious, this is Torrance, in vicarious penance and sorrow for the sin of mankind, Christ met and responded to the judgment and vexation of the Father, absorbing it in his own being. There's that word again. McLeod Campbell in Torrance, absorbing. This hints at something we must come to in due course, and that Torrance himself will lead us to. Namely, <clears throat> that there remains an aspect of Puina to be considered. We can't get around the fact that there is a judgment unto death. Somewhere, the question, is it legal or not? That's what we must still work out. But to be considered much more fully than the limited legal construct that so appalled MacLeod Campbell. But what MacLeod Campbell leaves us with at this point is a most profound theological intuition of poenitentia, without which poena must surely succumb to a solely legal interpretation as the imputation unto Christ of God's holy wrath. But is there yet a case to be made for vicarious penance? I've got ten more minutes, John other than as conventionally expressed in the common criticism of MacLeod Campbell. In a citation from Torrance in the previous paragraph, he used the term vicarious penance. What might Torrance have meant, and has he entered, entered more deeply into the thought of MacLeod Campbell than most of his critics? A theme that runs through both, of course, and it's central to all my own work, is that Christ is himself the atonement. And God is hitherto understood Christologically and soteriologically in terms of the filial relations between the Father and the Son. In which case, God, as the man Jesus, has stood in the gap and received the judgment of God upon us and acquiesced in that judgment so that as the person of Christ, Jesus the man acts in oneness with the Father and in oneness with all humankind. This is the ontological nature of the incarnation and the atonement. In hypostatic union, Jesus is both judging God and judged human. To say otherwise would be to infer that the Father and the Son are not one in being. 
Jesus, we can say, is judged vicariously. He is judged for us. As such, Jesus acquiesces in that judgment as he confesses our sin and bears upon the cross its consequence for the wages of sin is death. This too only makes any kind of sense when Jesus' ministry to the Father on our behalf is understood vicariously. How would it be a saving ministry otherwise? Christ's response to the Father in his confession of our sin on our behalf is the predicate of the ontological relation between the Father and the Son, which is worked out savingly through the Incarnation, the consequence of which is the Atonement. <clears throat> it would be to say too little of Christ's confession of our sin were it not to be accepted as an aspect of the Atonement that is faithful to Christ's ministry to the Father on our behalf. The common currency of criticism against MacLeod Campbell with respect to his supposed doctrine of vicarious penitence rests largely on the psychology of common sense with regard to guilt. That, arguably, was not the territory in which he laboured, however. His approach was thoroughly theological, even if the desired end was the Christian's experience of, the for of forgiveness of sin. I'm finding typos here. And peace with God. He sought to bring the subtle and difficult theological intuition of the filial relation between the Father and the Son to expression at the point of Christ's saving mediation. By taking the incarnation so seriously, however, and by linking it so firmly to his understanding of the atonement, he also opened the door to another common complaint against him, universalism. We're getting near the end. Universalism is a doctrine that at the end everyone will be saved. Was MacLeod Campbell a universalist, and would it matter either way? Robert Letham finds a strong universalist tendency in MacLeod Campbell. He then links MacLeod Campbell with Bart and Torns in advocating what he calls an incarnational universalism. There is, says Letham, no satisfactory way around the conclusion that if Christ unites himself with all people in the Incarnation, then he also dies for them on the cross. If the cross achieved what Christ intended, then all people are saved. Goodlow, who we mentioned earlier, is clear and helpful on this point in his presentation of MacLeod Campbell's early preaching. MacLeod, uh, Goodlow judges that he was not a universalist, though undoubtedly he stressed universal atonement, universal pardon, and the love of God. In Christ, we have the gift of making our own response to God. Yet in some manner difficult to define, it still remains within our power to reject the gospel. Why, within MacLeod Campbell's system, do some turn to God while others turn away? Why is the Christ-aided response to God not universally efficacious unto universal salvation. From an early sermon, MacLeod Campbell insists, quote, that God gives you Christ, your brother, as your king, and holds you responsible for that gift, end of quote. Faith appears to be the means by which we accept our responsibility before God, but not to be seen as a precondition for salvation or for a work that merits salvation, that is, everything is cast upon Christ, but it is only in acknowledging that Christ is the one who has won our salvation can we enter its giant peace. 
Goodlow may be correct in his assessment that for McLeod Campbell, the atonement at first seemed to be universal in extent, is now seen to be moral and spiritual in nature. It comes as a gift, yet as one for which we are responsible. We are expected to enter into it and to share its spiritual and moral change. Salvation is understood in terms of our participation in Christ, by which we share in his filial relation to the topic. Clearly, we are in difficult territory here. Undoubtedly, the affirmation of an incarnation-centred approach to the atonement can lead in a universalist direction. Yet MacLeod Campbell, Bart and Torrance all pull up short. We will come back to this in a later chapter when we discuss Torrance on the atonement for he has his own way of dealing with what is a profound mystery that is not amenable to what Torrance calls logical causal explanations of the relation between the atoning death of sin and the forgiveness, the death of Christ and the forgiveness of sin. At the end of the day, we are faced with a mystery that cannot be explained. Finally, and briefly, I'm running out of steam. <clears throat> the nature of the atonement is so anchored in father-son relations that on the surface the Holy Spirit is mostly absent from the discussion. Yet deeply embedded in McLeod Campbell's thought is that salvation is only possible for us through our sharing in the ascended life of Christ, to participate in his vicarious offering of himself to the Father. This gift of Christ to us, to share in his self-presentation to the Father, is by way of the gift of the Holy Spirit. The pneumatology of the atonement is implied in MacLeod Campbell's cardinal conviction of the transformed life that marks Christian faith. We will close with his words. My immediate object has been the urgent practical one of illustrating that, spirit, that spiritual constitution of things in which in the grace of God we have a place and to which we must needs be conformed if we would partake in the great salvation. Such conformity that a man of faith to the atonement which I have sought to illustrate is that to which our Lord calls us when he says, Seek ye first the kingdom and his righteousness. Adding, in order that we may be altogether free to give heed to the, the call, the assurance that on all other things will be added unto you. All other things, surely, is the Spirit of Christ. Amen. <laughs> <laughs>